I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a really beautiful and powerful story that we are going to be hearing on this episode. My guest for today is Megan Riley, and she is truly the essence of what it means to go through something very, very difficult and very painful and still stay on track with your recovery. It's a really important episode, so let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am incredibly honored to be sitting with our guest today, Meg from Megzi Recovery. Meg, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Karen. I'm I'm really, truly, truly honored. Uh, your narrative is powerful. It's beautiful, and there's a lot of pain in it as well. Um, and we talk about what it is like, how do you navigate through life as a recovered person when tragedy hits? And so that is not all we're going to be talking about, but there's, there's just so much. So can you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit or a lot about yourself? <laughs> okay, so um, I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 14, and then I kind of had treatment for about 10 years after that, but never particularly recovering, I wouldn't say. I kind of went up and down a little bit and went in and out of relapses. Um, And it wasn't until I was about 25 when I started getting some treatment, which really changed my life um, and actually got me to a recovered point. So I started CBTE, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Enhanced, so specialized for eating disorders. Um, And it just completely changed my approach to recovery. It was difficult because it's very focused on challenging your behaviors, facing your fears. Um, For me, it was gaining weight. Um, But like I said, it completely changed my life. So I had a course of CBTE, but then actually relapsed after that. So it got me to the best place I'd ever been. But following that, I had a period of kind of stress and anxiety, and I would, what I call, accidentally relapsed. So I had no intention to relapse at all, but following like a loss of appetite, and it was just accidental, it kind of flipped my eating disorder switch again. And I feel like I just got to a point where all of a sudden the eating disorder was running the show again, even though I had no intention for that to happen. Um, And then I went back into CBTE treatment after that. And that's kind of brought me to where I am today. But so I'd say I've had those experiences of 
for the first 10 years of my illness, I don't know if I want to call it intentionally <laughs> relapsing, but, but I, it was more of an active eating disorder. And then I got to this point where I felt great and I was really in life, but then accidentally relapsed from that point. Yeah. I, I don't mean to just like jump right into your YouTube, but it's, it's a really incredible YouTube. Um, I'm so non-technical station YouTube show. I don't know what to call it. I'm sorry, Meg. It's, it's a really powerful show. So can you talk about what you talk about on your YouTube videos? Yeah. So that was the second time around that I had the CBTE treatment. And I think I probably had anorexia for about 15 years at that point. And I'd been in and out of various types of treatment and I'd had some really like not so good treatment and then gotten into this treatment, which was so life-changing for me. So I think having had those different experiences and knowing how difficult it is for people to access treatment, I, I don't know, I just wanted to share this thing that was just so amazing for me and that was helping me so much. Um, so I, kind of call, I call it sharing forwards. Like I felt like I was so lucky to get such an amazing help and support. And it was really nice through YouTube and Instagram to be able to share that forwards and kind of show a bit in practice what it was that I was learning in my treatment sessions and then how I was applying it in the week and I kind of like record those in my YouTube videos to show like this is me challenging my food fears or this is me changing my wardrobe up when I'm growing out of my clothes and getting rid of the old clothes that kind of thing. You know it reminds me of you know clients say to me often this is really hard and I'm like oh of course it is and do it anyway. Like the recovery process is really, really difficult. And it sounds like what CBTE did for you was just keep nudging you through these challenges saying like, I know it's hard, keep going. I know it's hard, keep going. Can you share a little bit about what the experience was like using that model that was so effective? And that is a hundred percent it. I think before that point, if I'd ever faced a fear, I challenged a food I was scared of, it almost confirmed to me why I was scared of it because it felt so horrendous to face it. So I'd face it maybe once, maybe twice, feel so unbelievably awful and uncomfortable in my own skin that I think, well, I'm never doing that again. That's just confirmed every reason that I avoid that food. And then I'd go back to avoiding it. Whereas CBTE really pushed me beyond that boundary and I had to sit with that discomfort repeatedly to challenge things like multiple times and without compensating in between so not turning to another behavior to alleviate the anxiety and then just using an, a different type of eating disorder behavior or an eating disorder quick fix so it, it was the most uncomfortable treatment I've had but I think that's what I learned from it is that I need to challenge things and then keep going and challenge it again and challenge it again and not compensate in between. And then gradually it did start to get easier. But the problem in my past is that I'd never got, I'd never allowed myself to get to that point of it getting easier. I'd done it a couple of times, freaked out and run back to the eating disorder. Right there. That's, that is what happens all the time. And forgive me for interrupting you. I'm not saying it's it's an ultimate truth, but most people, when they're struggling with eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, whatever it is, it is the feeling of discomfort is so threatening to self that the behaviors are what 
push those feelings down. So we're asking, or I as a therapist am asking clients to do exactly what they've been doing opposite for the last few years. I want you to sit in the discomfort. Everything that you've been doing over the last few years to run away from it, and I'm not saying run away as a coward. I had an eating disorder. I was terrified of my emotions. I had to sit with it and realize that no matter what, I was finally going to get through it. And I think, and and I didn't, again, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I feel like that's sort of what you were talking about when you say that. Yeah. And I think realizing that I had such an intolerance to discomfort, which I think is really common amongst eating disorder sufferers, is that just wanting to feel okay all the time. Like, I just want to feel okay today. If I weigh this, I'm okay. If I eat under this, I'm okay. If I move this amount, I'm okay. If I fit these jeans, I'm okay. Like, it's all short-term tick box exercises that day to feel okay. But I feel like with recovery, it's letting go of that. And I can see why people run back for it because it's so uncomfortable. Like, I had feelings of wanting to rip my skin off my body, like, I just couldn't bear to be in my own body, but I kind of had to learn like, actually that is okay. I don't need to feel perfect all the time. I don't need to quick fix my way out of that and control my anxiety. Like I can feel that bad and it will pass. I know that you and I were talking about this before we started the recording, which is you have some pretty profound mantras that, and and by the way, when I say profound, some of them are very simple, but to internalize them is a profound experience. So can you share some of the mantras that you've used to help you get through this discomfort day after day after day until it got less, 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 and then you were in recovery? So what were some of those mantras? Yeah, I would say I lived by those kind of mantras in my recovery because I felt like there was always another eating disorder thought that I could have gotten. So if I tried to negotiate with them or argue them away, I'd end up like paralyzed in the kitchen basically, because as soon as I got rid of one thought, I'd get another thought. And then I'd try and challenge that. And then I'd get another thought and it was just so crippling. So in the end, I'd try to just block my thoughts a bit more and be like, just because I get the thought doesn't mean I need to act on it. So that was one of the things that I would say to myself. And I had a couple of like, little sound bites that I would try and just use as a bit of a wall to the ink sort of thoughts so opposite actions was one that I said all the time can you explain that because most I I do think that most people understand but not everybody does so it sounds like CBTE is sort of like based out of opposite action but how, how did you experience it basically going against what my eating disorder head would be telling me to do So if I'm getting a thought, oh, you don't really need to spread butter in your sandwich today, opposite actions, spread the butter in your sandwich. And it doesn't mean it's comfortable, like that would feel horrible. And then I would have to use like, are you allowed to swear on this podcast? You absolutely are, my darling. (laughs) So then I would love to use feel shit and do it anyway. Like just because it feels bad, that's not a reason to not do it. You can feel shit and do it. Uh, I would say to myself things like, um, if you want to be able to do it at some point, you need to do it, which sounds so simple, but I'd have these images of myself like, oh, I really would love to go to a cafe and sit and read my book and get a cake and a coffee. And I'd think, okay, well, if I want to do that, I need to do it. That's not, it's never going to do itself. You know, I'm not going to think my way there. I'm going to have to just go and do it. There it is. 
there's only so much visualization that one can do until they actually go and do the action. Yeah, exactly. And a big, big one that I used was, um, I would say to myself, live the life you ultimately want to live because this vision of me sitting in a cafe was all very well until I came to do it. So when I'm away from it, I could think that's absolutely what I want to be able to do. Like I'd love to go and sit in a cafe and order a cake. But the day I came to do it, I'd think that is the last thing in the world I want to do. So if I'd have acted on how I felt in that moment, I wouldn't have done it. So I tried to align my behaviors more to what I wanted to be able to do in the future rather than what I wanted to be able to do today. Because today was always guided by the eating disorder. But I would think to myself, right, live the life you ultimately want to live, even if you don't want to live it right now. It reminds me a lot of when I have clients do an eating disorder dialogue and it's, you know, start with the eating disorder voice. What would the healthy voice say back? Then what does the eating disorder voice say back? What does the healthy voice? And what I used to say to clients is whatever thought ends the, ends the, I'm going to say argument because I would be arguing in my head. That was my way. Whatever, whoever has the last thought that's the direction your energy is going to go into. And so if my last thought was, I, you know, I absolutely can't do this. It's intolerable. Well, then I would have stayed in my eating disorder that in that moment. If my last thought was from my healthy self was like, I know this is really hard and I'm going to push myself to do it anyway. That's the energy. So it really depends which part of self gets the last word. Absolutely. And that kind of stepping back from the situation always helped me and looking at the bigger picture. So not acting on how I felt in that moment, because that's going to be guided by, I've got so much anxiety. I'm so scared of this food. I didn't have it yesterday. I haven't prepared for it. It's not the right moment. I'm too stressed, whatever it would be. But if I could think to myself, like in a year, I want to be able to do this. So at some point I'm going to have to do it. That would help me. So like stepping back from the moment and looking at the bigger picture of what I wanted to be able to do. Did you start creating all these mantras when you went into this CBTE model or like were these things that you collected along the way? Where, where did they come from? Yeah, mainly through CBTE, to be honest, in the last couple of years. And like I played about with them as well. So the live, you, the, live the life you ultimately want to live. I used to say to myself, live the life you want to live. But then when I came to do it, I never wanted to do it. So I had to add in the word ultimately, which absolutely changed the game for me because then it, was, it wasn't about what you want to do right now. It's what you want to be able to do in the future. Incredible. It really, it really is. And by the way, words are very powerful. So just like you said, the word, adding the word ultimately changes the whole sentence. Yeah. 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 It really clicked with that. I was like, oh, now it makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Something was wrong before. (laughs) What, what are some of the things that you do on your YouTube videos? Like I did hear you say, like, you'll, you'll sit down and you'll have challenging meals or whatnot, or are people reaching out to you and saying, you know, can you talk about this or how are you coming up with what you share with people? Um, Yeah, good question. A bit of both. People would suggest topics. um, And also, if there was kind of a current theme for me, I would run with that. So I found when I was going through challenging a lot of my food fears, I almost did a series of challenging food fears. So there'd be um, a video of me having cheese, for example, 
Although there was actually quite a lot of videos of me having cheese because that was a really scary food for me. And I realized that I had to have cheese in multiple settings. I couldn't just have it at home because then if I was in a restaurant, I'd be like, oh, but I can't eat cheese in a restaurant. So I had to make sure, okay, I can have it at work. I can have it at a friend's house. I can have it at home. I can have it in a cafe. And then also in different forms, like I can have it hot. I can have it cold. I can have it grated. I can have it sliced. I can have cheddar. I can have brie. I feel like eating disorders are so sneaky and you can challenge something only for your rule to just morph a little bit. And it's like, okay, you are allowed cheese, but only if X, Y, Z, like there's a whole new set of conditions attached to it. So like that, that example of a video, I challenged it in all sorts of different circumstances to try and make it, I guess, unconditional. Like I'm allowed cheese full stop, not I'm allowed cheese with a condition. Yeah. Well, also it's, you know, I've had clients do, you know, challenge themselves with food and then they don't go back to it. And so a week later, it's like another, it's a new challenge. And so what I say is, is you can't just challenge something once. You have to do it again and again and again. By the way, one of the reasons why people end up needing residential treatment is they need that consistency breakfast, then, then snack then lunch. Like you do it again and again and again until that becomes your new norm, which I hate that expression. I'm sorry. I just said that everyone, but you know, so that's the other thing that you were doing is you were normalizing it. It's about repetitiveness, you know, and, and again, challenges are so scary that clients will do a challenge once and then think that's checked off. And I say, Oh no, 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 no. You are just getting started. We're going to do this a lot. Right. Yeah, completely. And so one of the sayings I used to use for myself was challenge, repeat, challenge, repeat, don't compensate, challenge, repeat, because you can't just do it once or twice. If you think about how many years you've avoided these foods for, months, years, decades, however long it's been, you're not going to undo that with facing it one time. It needs to be repeated. And also, it's you're not doing it just for the sake of challenging it. Another saying I would use is once it's in, it's in. So like, I keep using examples of things, but salad dressing was something for me that I challenged and I did YouTube videos about it. And it was kind of like, I was challenging it to say that I'd done it. I didn't really see myself having salad dressing long-term. I thought, okay, I'll do it. And then I'll go back to restricting. And then I kind of realized like, actually, this needs to just be my new behavior now. I'm showing myself like, this is just allowed. This is okay. So it's not a tick box exercise. It's once it's in, it's in. And salad dressing now is a very regular part of my diet. Like I wouldn't dream of having a salad without a dressing on it. So we're talking about some of the behavioral patterns that go on with eating disorders and some of the symptoms with the with the foods and things like that. I I want I want to take a hard turn because eating disorder recovery is not solely about being able to incorporate a challenging food into your daily living. It is about navigating through life when life becomes at times unbearably challenging and recognizing that there is no eating disorder behavior that is going to change what is happening or fix or whatever it is. Share with the listeners, you you went through an incredible tragedy and still stayed course in your recovery. So wherever you would like to begin. 
Yeah, so speaking about emotions, I think for me, that was one of my biggest underlying issues under the eating disorder. So once that behind the food challenges and body image, and like you're saying, I kind of had to relearn or learn, I don't know if I'd ever had learned it, how to deal with my emotions in a way that keeps me in line with my values, isn't self-destructive, you know, it doesn't reduce my world down to something so tiny as it was when I had an eating disorder. So I think that intolerance to discomfort, like I mentioned before, I just suffered from that so badly. If I felt anything uncomfortable, I wanted to fix it straight away. And I felt like for years, I tried to kind of achieve my way out of emotions. So if I was stressed or sad or lonely or something like that, my first thoughts would be, right, get your to-do list out, be productive today, achieve something, restrict your food, save your money, it was all about like, if I achieve something, then I'll feel okay and everything will be better. Even though it was not like relevant to what was going on in my life at all. Like if I was feeling lonely and then I went and tried to be productive, like that's not going to help me meet people or make friends or address what's actually happening in my life. It's kind of just painting over the top of it. So I think emotions was a huge, huge thing that I needed to face and learn to deal with. And um, so like you said, we've had a very difficult couple of years and two years ago now, well, nearly two years ago, in March, 2020, we had our first baby. We had a little boy called Alfie, but he really sadly died. Um, he was stillborn. So uh, it was, well, it has been ever since then, just the most unbelievably painful um, and just life-changing experience to go through but I think well I, I feel like I learned so much from the experience and I always say I feel like Alfie has given us so much like I feel so unbelievably grateful to Alfie for everything he's brought into our lives and one of those things for me is that he showed me what it is to feel that much intense pain and just to feel it, you know, like not to run away from it like I had done in the past, not to try and quick fix my way out of it, not to cover it up, not to turn to a short-term behavior like food or drugs or alcohol or shopping or whatever else people turn to, you know, but I just sat in that pain, really. Um, and I think from that experience, I kind of, I don't know if I learned about resilience or just what, what you can actually cope with and how strong you can actually be and that you don't need to use behaviours to get out of it. So I think also the fact that I'd accidentally relapsed in the past taught me that that is something that can happen. So whether I actively turn back to food because I'm looking for some control or whether through grief I lose my appetite and don't want to eat, like either of those are both roots straight back into an eating disorder. So I feel like from my history, I've kind of learned that now. And so I knew to protect myself against both of those things. And I kind of went into a quite a, almost like robotic way of eating, to be honest. Like I went back, it almost felt like I was going back to being more disordered because I went back to, okay, now I'm just gonna eat three meals, three snacks at regular times, non-negotiable, you know, I just sat down and ate it and I, had, I would have no appetite at all, but I would just eat it because I knew I needed to protect my recovery as well. 
yeah, I feel like I, uh, I don't know how we could, I don't know how to say it, like how we can ever repay Alfie, to be honest, for everything he's ever given us, like along with all the unbelievable love and how proud I am of him, and just how grateful I am that he was ours. And yeah, I just feel like he has just given us so much. And I just wish we could give him more back. My first statement before I go into is my heart is with you and your husband, with Elfie, with your whole family. And I just want to say that to start with. I am, I am truly, truly sorry. Going back into your eating disorder, Meg, would have taken a tragedy and made it more tragic. First of all, that could have taken your life if you went back into your eating disorder and did not survive it, it is not going to help at all with the process of grief. If you cannot feel grief, you cannot move on. If you cannot feel grief, you cannot honor Alfie. You, are, you cannot just numb yourself out of one feeling, so you'd numb yourself out of everything, even honoring him. Yeah. I also want to say easier said than done. It is it is a remarkable a remarkable thing that you navigated through. I can't believe I'm I'm at a loss for words. That's what it is, Meg. I'm actually at a loss for words. To be honest, I never thought we'd have been able to do it either. Like both of us really, me and my husband, like, I don't know, you can't really prepare for those kind of things until they just happen. And then yeah, I don't know, but Definitely, I feel like it's just taught me to be a lot less scared of my emotions. Like, I now just think whatever happens in life, we'll be able to cope with it. And it, that's not to say life will be easy. Like, we'll face things that are stressful or heartbreaking or frustrating or whatever it is that I used to try and avoid, like, the absolute plague. But, you know, like, those feelings are okay. We'll just feel those things for a bit and then we'll cope. <laughs> What was it like having had a very public pregnancy because you have these YouTube videos and then to have this happen? Did you feel like you needed to explain, which I hope you never felt like you had to explain your, your life to anyone, but did that add any extra pressure or stress on you? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, so I don't really, not only do I not mind talking about Alfie, I love to talk about him. Like, I love to hear his name. I love telling people about him. Like I'm so proud of him. Like I gave birth to this incredible baby boy that I love with all my heart. And I always want to be talking about him, to be honest, like, like mothers do with their children. You know, if your child was here, you're so proud of them and you want to talk about them. My child's not here, but I still love him with all my heart and want to talk about him. So um, I, don't, I think almost people expect you might not want to talk about it. And I probably err on the side of caution of upsetting people or making things awkward or with like my followers on Instagram, I think, oh, like I've never posted a photo of Alfie and I would love to, like, I'd love to show everybody a photo of Alfie, but no one ever asks you because when you say your baby's died, that's a bit of a conversation ender, you know, and people are like, people just say straight away, I'm so sorry which is lovely, but like, I still had a baby. Do you know what I mean? I still love him with all my heart. I still want to say his name and hear his name and show his photo and that kind of thing. So I feel like the kind of 
taboo around pregnancy and baby loss still and um, how kind of awkward it is publicly. I kind of react to that and I feel like that makes it a bit difficult to share him. But yeah, it probably, yeah, probably doesn't come from what I would want as much as how I anticipate it might be, I might feel for other people. I know you said that you went into sort of a robotic state, which, by the way, is another sign of how recovered you were or are, that you were aware. That does not mean like, oh, she's going back to her quote unquote meal plan. She must. That is the ultimate sign of recovery, which is I know I just have to do this, even if it's going to be robotically. I have to imagine, though, that there were times when you couldn't do it. Were there times that you struggled or were you able to, you know, continuously move forward in the recovery or I don't know. I mean, and 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 forgive me for asking if that's an inappropriate question. No, no, it's OK. And no, to be honest, I did manage to do it. Like sometimes I would be like crying and I'd still know I needed to eat um, and also just putting things in place like at first all our friends made us all our meals, which was the kindest thing. And they would drop them at the doorstep. And that sort of thing was so helpful because it would have been so hard for us to think about getting up and cooking a meal. So we kind of had some strategies in place. Um, I was seeing my psychologist again as well. So I was getting weighed weekly to make sure I stayed on top of it. Um, yeah. Can you let everyone know where things are at for you now? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're currently pregnant again with our second baby, um, who is due in March of this year, 2022. So it's been a very uh, mixed emotions experience, honestly, more so than I'd realized it would be. Uh, just the fact they're due at the same time, that kind of thing, like it's, it's the most amazing thing, obviously, growing a life that's incredible and it's what we've wanted. But how sad it makes you for the baby that's not here is really difficult as well. So I'm finding it difficult to sit with those completely polar opposite emotions of loss and life and of like hope for a new baby and missing a previous baby. Where do you get support other than, you know, I'm sure you and your husband, you know, it share support together, but you said it's a taboo subject. When, when a mother or when parents or people, when they lose a child, you're right. Nobody talks about it, which is again, another reason that you could have gone back into the eating disorder. So where do you get your support from? Yeah, it has definitely been a very lonely couple of years and it's felt very isolating. Even this pregnancy has felt very isolating, to be honest. Um, but speaking to other people who've been through loss themselves has been very helpful, which I guess is what people find as well with that eating disorder community is having people who've been through similar or people who understand and you can connect with that kind of thing. Um, so I have found this with pregnancy after loss as well, connecting with other mums has been very helpful. You know, I I also don't I don't mean to state the obvious but but had you gone back into your eating disorder, you would have not been able to get pregnant and have this new child coming into the world and into our universe. And so again, there is nothing that the eating disorder would have done to help you heal. 
it would have kept you stuck and trapped. Yeah, no, 100%. I think I was very, very clear. I didn't want to go back to it. It was not a solution at all. My only worry is if accidentally, you know, unintentionally, I'd have fallen back, but I feel like I put up enough um, whatever strategies in place to try and help that stop that from happening. But yeah, I completely agree. And also like my goal was never just to get pregnant. I was always very aware of how I want to be as a mum. And I feel like with eating disorders, they're just so consuming. And like my whole head just used to be focused on food all day, thinking about food, planning my food, worrying about my food. And I just didn't want that. I really wanted to be able to welcome Alfie into the world and be fully present for him. So even with him not being here, you know, that's still the mum I'd want to be to him and to siblings in the future who hopefully, if we can bring home, you know, yeah, I'm very mindful of that. Was your body changing through pregnancy difficult for the experience you had had for so many years with anorexia? How did you, how did you do with the pregnancy and how are you doing with this one? Yeah. Also a very, very good question. Yes. Um, the seeing your weight go up, you do gain weight as well, like for a healthy pregnancy, which is what you want, like you do gain weight. So accepting that. And I think something I've really learned in my treatment, which helped so much was any time I had body image issues or felt uncomfortable with weight gain and my body changing in recovery was trying not to focus on my body, but instead to focus on life. And so to see um, even if I don't feel particularly comfortable in my body, but what does it allow me to do? You know, um, like as in I was recovering from my life, not recovering for a particular shape of body. And, and so with pregnancy, the same thing, like it was changing for a reason. It was nurturing a baby. I don't think it's just during pregnancy either. I think bodies can change at all stages of life, just like with aging or anything, you know, there's all sorts of times your body's going to change, but that's okay. Like it's not for you to override and control, like give your body a break. I also think I heard you say in one of your interviews once that, that you, you don't, and, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm, paraphrasing something about don't compare your body to other people's bodies because, well, first of all, I mean, we all know to try not to do that, but there was something that you said, which is like something about, you know, everybody's like, we just assume there's one body type. That's what I'm saying. Like people in diet culture just assume there is one body type. And there are, there are so many different body types and we're comparing with things that we, like you said, we really don't have control over. Does that make sense? I know I just sort of rambled that. Does this, does that ring a bell for you? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The fact we're all products of body diversity, like it's actually nothing to do with us. It's pretty much a genetic lottery, like your shape and size and the body that you're born into. And it's not that you've done something good or bad or you didn't choose it, you know, it's kind of out of your hands, the shape and size and natural weight that your body wants to be. I feel like that was one of my biggest, biggest realizations in recovery. And one of the hardest things was accepting that my body, it's not up to me what size my body is. And the reality is also, is that 
what is up to us is if we want to get stuck in diet culture or if we want to go into our own sense of self and say, and and I don't mean to sound like all bodies, like like I don't mean to to get flowery or say, you know, all bodies are beautiful and whatnot, but all bodies are beautiful. <laughs> like, I don't mean to get all flowery, but it's actually true. And, you know, it's bodies, we, we come in, we, my body is different just because of where my grandmother came from, because of my genetic you know, disposition, my, my culture is part of my body. I, I'm, you know, you cannot change things at least permanently and live a full life, a satisfying life, a life that's filled with value, richness of, of, of experiences. If what you're doing is focusing on trying to change your body, you're missing everything. Completely. Yeah, I feel like I got to the point where I kind of saw I had two options. I could try and override what was natural to my body and so suppress my body weight. And to do that, my body was going to fight back. So I would have to live with thoughts of food. I'd have to restrict my diet because it's not a natural body weight for me. Um, I'd have a small reduced life or I could accept, okay, my body is actually meant to be bigger than what I had planned in my head or what doctors had set as targets or what BMI chart said was healthy. Like my body didn't know those things. It had its own, <laughs> its own like happy place, you know? And so if I just em could embrace that and let my body do its thing, that would mean I wouldn't have to restrict my food to maintain it because it's a natural weight for my body. So I wouldn't have to think about food all day. I wouldn't have to be planning my food and I could live a full life. I could live in line with my values. I could be spontaneous and fun and flexible, you know? Yeah. I also want to go back and forgive me, this is completely going back to something from before, but I, you know, you were talking earlier about like, you wanted to be able to like sit in a cafe and enjoy a piece of cake. And, you know, food is not just, you know, the fuel you need to get energy to move throughout the day. Look at what happened after you lost Alfie. What did your friends and family do? They brought you food. It is, it is love. This was their, their way of saying, we know right now cooking or going to the supermarket, or whatever it is, is unbearable because of the grief. We're going to feed you spiritually and physically. Food is to be shared, enjoyed. It helps with grief. It helps with celebrations. And, and I just, I wanted to make sure we pointed that out. Like that was what people did. That's how they how they responded to, to what you needed. Yeah, completely. And that's such a helpful thing in recovery as well, is to see food beyond a number. Yes. There's so many more dimensions to it. And you don't always just eat because you're hungry or because it's lunchtime. You eat for all sorts of reasons. You eat because the person next to you is eating and they've offered you something. <laughs> or because you fancy it, you're craving it, or... Or you're in a rush and you've got a meeting, so you think, oh, I'm just going to grab something really quickly and eat that quickly. I'm, I'm aware of the time, and I'm so sorry to say that we're going to have to start bringing this to an end. And I'm wondering, Meg, first of all, is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to share with listeners? Or is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't, we didn't get to? No, just on what we were saying about the body diversity and accepting um, your own body size kind of thing. I think I had such a hard time with it because it made me so angry. I was like, but I want my body to be this size. 
and I couldn't get past, but it isn't, you know? And I was like, well, no, I'm not accepting that. And so I was trying to fight it. And I think, well, maybe this time it's going to be my natural body size. And it just, it never, ever was. And I had kind of targets that had been set for me in the past in my head or a friend, I knew a friend's BMI and they were naturally lower. Or on a BMI chart, it told me I should be healthier this way or whatever, whatever. I had a preference in my head, you know. And so I thought, well, my body just should be the size that I want it to be or this size that doctors told me is going to be healthy. And I think that realizing like I could spend the rest of my life trying to override my body and try and make it something that I thought it should be in my brain when physically and genetically it shouldn't be. So kind of just a bit of acceptance, like I didn't have to love it if I just accepted my body at the size my body wants to be, it will allow me to live my life without thoughts of food. I can connect to other people, you know, all the things I want my life to be and the way I'm going to look back on my life and feel like that's how I wanted to live my life. Exactly. The reality is, is I don't remember what my, uh, and, and everybody, I'm, I'm exaggerating this, this, this example, but I don't remember what I weighed last week. I don't remember what I weighed two weeks ago. I don't remember what I weighed two years ago. Well, first of all, because I don't weigh myself. But second of all, because that's not important. What I remember is last week, you know, connecting with an old friend because the pandemic is getting worse and we're all sort of going a little bit back into isolation. What I remember and what I'm going to remember today is this conversation that I'm having with you and the way I get to see you through Zoom and, and our connection. I don't know what size I am. And, and, and we have to remember, this is where you were talking about not looking in what you want in the moment, but what do you want from the bigger picture? You, d- does that make sense? Completely, yeah. And I think a really good question around that is thinking, how are you going to look back on your life? So if, you know, we're lucky enough to get to 80 and we're looking back at our lives, what is it you're going to remember? What do you value? What's important to you? What's meaningful? And it's not going to be, oh, but I fit this pair of jeans. I had this number on the scale or I ate under X calories today. It is not going, that. that's not it. That's not what I want to look back on. So... Yeah, but it's remembering that in the moment because the eating disorder is so powerful in the moment. Those do feel like the most important things. And then you, in a month's time, they're still the most important things. In a year's time, they're still the most important things. In a decade's time, they're still the most important things. Like, unless you break that cycle, you'll get to eight, you'll get to be that 80 year old looking back on your life. And that's what it will have been made up of. So I do feel like it's a bit of like aligning your behaviors to your values. Yeah, it's a lot like that. I, I want to live a life that I value and it's not about what size my body is. It's about, like I said, the people I'm connecting with, the work I'm doing, the, all these other things. And so we have to, and I always say to clients, does this align with what you value? Because in order to be, to do this behavior, whether it's binging and purging or restricting, let's say you value honesty doesn't line up with that behavior because you have to lie to be in that behavior. I lied all the time in my eating disorder and I'm not a liar. So that didn't match my values. Mm-hmm. That's something that I, I often, I often say to clients, are you living what you value? And that's important. Yeah. And the life you want to live and the person that you want to be. And also it's likely that if you think about what life do I want to live or who do I want to be, 
it's only going to be facilitated by a non-weight suppressed body. You can't have both. You can't think, oh, but I'd like to live a full life and hold my weight at X BMI. <laughs> it doesn't work because it's too consuming. You'll still have to plan your food and think about your food and count your calories or do what you have to engage in whatever weight controlling behavior you have to engage in to suppress your body weight. And that is not compatible with living a full life. That's that's it right there. That is that is an, a beautiful sentence to end on because that's exactly what it is. So Meg, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice to chat to you. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at recoverybitespod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast signup to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.